I speak to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, that's a fun gospel reading. All three of our scriptures this morning are easily misinterpreted. And I danced around with all three thinking, where do I want to sort of land? I looked at Isaiah, and I realized that it sounds often and is often used as an encouragement that we're going to all experience prosperity. But that's not what it's about. It's about harmony. And the wolf and the lamb will lie together, will feed together. Although I think the lamb might be a little nervous. <laughs> then the second Thessalonians passage. It talks about idleness. And in our good Protestant ethic, and certainly the translators probably held that reality, it sounds like it's about people who are lazy. But the actual word means disruptors, causers of chaos. These are borderline people who define themselves by what they're against. They're disruptive and they will not work for peace. They're meddlers. In my family, we called them Schmidt disturbers. <laughs> and that too was tempting this morning. But I've chosen to focus on the gospel text. And I don't know how many times in my lifetime I have seen this text used as a hellfire and brimstone message usually couched in a sense that the speaker is saying, listen to me, not all those other false voices out there, and certainly don't trust your own mind or your common sense. And the irony is that this text tells us not to do that. And the first time I remember hearing this hellfire and brimstone was when I was eight. I was at daily vacation Bible school, and Mrs. Friesen noticed that had a large scar on my arm from a burn. My mother had a wood stove and an electric stove, and I had tripped and fallen on the wood stove and burnt my arm. So I became show and tell, and she brought me up in front of the class and asked me how much that hurt and how long it hurt, and then said, now imagine your whole body like that for all eternity. <laughs> and we all accepted Jesus. <laughs> I came home and told my mother that I had accepted Jesus. She asked me how that had happened, and graciously she was furious. And I'm glad I wasn't at the receiving end of her anger at Mrs. Friesen. And she explained to me that accepting Jesus was about love, not fear. The original source for our gospel text is Mark. The time is the beginning of Passion Week. And as he often does in the gospels, Jesus is teaching in the temple. And his teaching and actions eventually lead to his execution. And both Mark and Luke, in nearly identical language, have Jesus predict the destruction of the temple. But one should keep in mind, however, that the temple was destroyed around AD 70. And Luke is writing around A.D. 85, and he's writing about the period around A.D. 30. And so the text is not overtly prophecy, in other words, but an interpretation of history, a reflection on history to highlight a point at the current time. 
and I admit that's my intent this morning as well. In any case, it would not have taken someone with supernatural predictive abilities to anticipate that the Jews would get trampled in any war with the Romans. The makings of war had been growing for quite a while. And when King Herod died in 4 BC, there were uprisings all over the country. Roman legions from Syria had to be brought in to quell the revolt, and they were not happy when they arrived. And Jesus' own ministry rallied and encouraged the poor and disfranchised against these superpowers. Jesus probably could see that war and violence might come, but then so could a lot of people. And the Roman-Jewish war lasted from AD 66 to 70 when the temple was destroyed. In the beginning, the rebellion was widespread. And as the Romans brought their military pressure to bear in the north, the Jews were forced back into Fortress Jerusalem in AD 69. And within Jerusalem, the Jewish defenders were divided. In hopes of a ceasefire, some advocated for accommodation with the Romans. But some of the more fanatical Jewish defenders took an apocalyptic hell and brimstone view. And if they could just hold on, a while longer, they thought, God would intervene and smite the offenders. These more fanatical defenders gained the upper hand in the city and likely put pressure on the followers of Jesus urging them to abandon nonviolence and join the struggle against this infidel. And as we know, fanatical defenders too often gain the upper hand. Jerusalem put on a brave defense, and the Romans actually had a hard time capturing the city. But when they did, it was brutal. They destroyed everything they could destroy. Blood literally ran in the streets. And the destruction of the temple was utterly devastating for the people. And so Luke is reflecting on this over a decade after the event. How do we reflect on these events today, we might ask? Because that's what he was trying to do in his day. These verses, I want to suggest, reflect two visions of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The first invites us to focus on the prophecies of the future and makes little difference in how we live in the here and now. In fact, it often suggests that life is just a holding pattern until Jesus comes. The second calls us to embrace a life here that if lived in its fullness, will place us in confrontation alongside of the political and cultural realities in which we live. Will place us in the world, but somehow not of the world. And I want to follow this second way of thinking and what this might look like. As one biblical interpreter says, the text has nothing to do with predictions of the future, and any interpretation which treats it so fatally is fatally flawed from the start. Luke was not written primarily for 21st century Christians anxious about the future. It was written for a beleaguered and persecuted minority under the thumb of Rome. How were they to deal with these situations? Luke's answer is, listen for Jesus. Trust in Jesus. And use Jesus himself as a model. This is about more than just getting saved. 
This is a model of how to live, moment by moment, here and now. When I was studying at seminary in San Francisco, I had the opportunity to go and hear the Buddhist Thich Nhat Hanh. There was a large crowd in this building, and I remember during the question period, a lot of people from a background of Christian faith, and one of those people very obviously stood up and asked him, how should those of us that are disillusioned with our Christianity, how could we come to Buddhism? And he looked totally perplexed and said, don't do that. Stay where you're planted and just love us. I think that beautifully sums up what Jesus is seeking to say in these verses. All these cataclysmic things in our lives, personally and politically, worldwide, are going to keep happening. But listen, trust the model, the love of Christ. Had we done that instead of the Crusades, might it have made a difference? It took us a long time to realize that. Had we done that instead of moving indigenous people off their lands, massacring them, stealing their children and putting them in residential schools, might that have made a difference? And it's only recently that we're beginning to realize what we did. Had we done that as missionaries rather than making good church going to Europeans, would it have made a difference? We cloned instead of inviting disciples. And had we done that instead of burning women as witches because they asked too many questions, would it have made a difference? This is an error we are still seeking to heal. And we do learn, but often in hindsight, and ironically, often when we feel persecuted or marginalized. Will Willman, the Southern preacher, says, we Christians have done pretty well in prisons. But that was then and this is now. <clears throat> and Jesus' message suggests that these kinds of things have happened in the past, and are going to happen in the future, and we will continue to be tempted to make exceptions in being loving. We will be tempted to become zealots, fanatical defenders of ideology rather than relationship. And I think Jesus here is talking about what I want to call the contents of our faith, not the containers. Beautiful as the temple is and was, it is not the contents of our faith. It is the container, it carries the contents. It is a safe place for the contents to be honored. Contents need containers, but containers have a tendency to become our preoccupation. Years ago, I heard about a study done by Starbucks where they went to a college university and they put out 12 pots of coffee and they had all kinds of mugs, from paper mugs all the way to very fancy mugs. And they handed them out indiscriminately and asked people to do taste tests on these 12 pots of coffee and rate them. What the people did not know was that the coffee was all the same. But there was a direct correlation between the taste of the coffee and how well the person liked their mug. That's what we're talking about. I love our little church. I look around and I enjoy the symbols that remind me of my faith. I love that it looks like an upside-down ship sailing through time towards eternity. 
I love the acoustical quality that gives me an otherworldly echo of peace. I love the stained glass that depicts the defining moments of our heritage. I love hearing the stories of longtime members and their years of faithful service to not just this congregation, but this community. And I love that it holds our dead, celebrates our lives, and welcomes our children. But I think I love it most of all for all the unique expressions of faith that each of you reflect and aspire to. And like this building, we too, individually and collectively, are imperfect containers, but we carry the contents. The kingdom is among us, and that's why the Eucharist is so central here. When I was in seminary in San Francisco, we lived close to Napa, and there was about 25, 30 of us that decided to go on a wine tasting tour. And we rented this bus, and we went out to a winery, and we're sitting there, and there's this young man very enthusiastic about wine, telling us all about the wine and the color and the sun and the soil and all the scientific stuff about the wine and going on and on and on. And one of, suddenly one of the more quieter, pensive gentlemen in our group said, young man, we didn't come here to talk about the wine. <laughs> that is why the Eucharist is central as a symbol of our faith being something that is in us, not just that which is around us. We worship, we read, we listen, and then we stop. We didn't come here to just talk about the wine. We came to drink the wine, the symbol of the contents of our faith. So come and taste and see that the Lord is good. It is silence, it is music and symbols that remind us to reflect on the contents, the essence of our faith. Amen.